Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content out on the internet. The best place to do that or the best way to do that is to follow me on Twitter at, at Focus Compound. Uh, go to focuscompound.com to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff going all the way back to 2005. And of course, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, uh, where Jeff Gannon is the portfolio manager, you can reach out to me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. Of course, you can click the Invest With Us tab on the website to get all the information on that as well. So in today's podcast, Jeff, we're going to talk about capital allocation. Okay. And I want to read something to you. Um, it's from The Outsiders. I like to not have the sleeve on my books because I think it looks nice, mm-hmm. nice color. Uh, and it's called The Buffett Test. We've spoken about this on the podcast. We've never actually looked at a scenario. Uh Uh, that Buffett does. And it says, Warren Buffett has proposed a simple test for capital allocation ability. Has a CEO created at least a dollar of value for every dollar of retained earnings over the course of his tenure? So wanted to talk to you about that metric. We could also talk about a few other uh, capital allocation things out of this book. But Wanted to get your opinion on the Buffett test, how you tend to think about it, how you uh, analyze uh, like a company and, and judge a CEO and his capital allocation abilities from this specific metric, uh, and really just how you think about it. So do you agree that that is the best way to judge the ability of a CEO uh, as it relates to capital allocation? So yes, in theory, that is the perfect test. In practice, I think even Buffett's walked away from it from the sense that you can't do it over such a short period of time. And there are also some accounting complications for some things where I know people email me about this question a lot and you can't really use retained earnings. Um, this is a problem, you know, uh, for, for many companies you can, but it, it'll be a problem. It'll be a problem at some companies that this won't work. Um, but any test you could come up with will have that problem. You know, some you could say, OK, well, it's a test of how much you raise earnings, but it won't show up in earnings. Buffett was speaking about this specifically because of, um, you know, kind of measuring Berkshire and stuff. And, and Berkshire had operating businesses and and a portfolio. Um, but it's absolutely true. If, if you retain a dollar instead of paying it out to shareholders, then you need to create a dollar of market value over time. And the Outsiders has a table where it kind of does that test and, and compares things. But I think you'll notice that it can't run the test for TCEI. Um, because uh, it didn't have reported earnings, right? But they're still retaining things because they had cash flow. So, um, but it's absolutely true uh, that discretionary money that the that headquarters chooses to keep needs to add a dollar of market value. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that is also seeing that CEOs and stuff respond to this. Um, sometimes too short term, you know. But that explains, like, when we talk about movie studios and why they were all in on streaming and everything is, look, their stocks were telling them a subscriber is worth X to your stock, you know, per subscriber. So I need to acquire them at whatever, you know, however many million subscribers that will add to my stock price and that will get results even if my accounting numbers don't show that. Um, Mm -hmm. So 
I mean, is it literally looking at the balance sheet, right? And here's Berkshire Hathaway um, mm-hmm. uh, as Buffett is the longest running CEO probably in the world right now uh, from the perspective of how long he's been uh, chief executive officer. Uh, we could go to a quarterly on QuickFS, get the re- current retained earnings of $569 billion, and their market cap is uh, $793 billion. I mean, is that literally mm-hmm. how you would think about it using the Buffett test? To be like, okay, market cap is more than what they've retained. There's something there. Yeah, so that is one way. And um, one thing that I've mentioned to people before is that any situation in which you have a company selling for less than its retained earnings is immediately interesting. Uh, it, it may not be good that it is doing that. Uh, there may be legitimate reasons why it is, but that's actually very exciting in terms of looking at net nets and stuff. If it's trading at just a discount to possible liquidation is a little more complicated because it has no past history of um, of earnings. But anytime a company is trading at less than its retained earnings, that is the market is making a very clear um, argument that future returns will be really lousy and for possibly a long time and stuff. So the capital has to be kind of stuck or there has to be some reason why it's going to be used for really, really poor purposes or something like that. Mm. What are some other tests that you look at or look through or think through uh, as it relates to judging a, a CEO? and uh, their capital allocation abilities. Is there anything else, any soft signs that you tend to think about? Oh, there's lots of like symptoms of things, but they don't necessarily work in all situations. So like I tend not to like companies issuing a lot of shares, but there's nothing wrong with issuing a lot of shares. It's just companies don't do it in a way that that um, benefits their continuing shareholders usually. Okay, so um, what is a way that that can benefit shareholders? And what is the other way that you would think would be destructive? Well, the the easiest way to benefit them would to be, you know, at a time when private companies are not as valuable as public companies in an industry to issue stock to acquire companies for less than your own stock trades for that, because basically your stock, your PE and stuff when in, when flipped um, is going to give you a, a yield, which is really sort of the cost of capital that you have that way. So what we're talking about is that as you get a higher PE ratio, it becomes less and less um, to to maintain your stock price requires less and less performance in terms of what your future returns are in, in earnings versus what your situation is now. So you can, in essence, buy, uh, you can pay higher and higher prices and get rewarded for it. So today, you know, let's say something, um, you know, there, there's venture capital and stuff. So I'm sure that um, private AI things are very expensive, but if they weren't, it might be that the market thinks that AI stuff is is great. So if if um, you know Nvidia provides chips that are used and stuff like that, so if they could find someone else who's a private supplier that they could buy and it was at a higher multiple, that would work if they used their own shares. Now, in some cases, it makes no difference. Um, you have the problem with uh, let's see um, Exxon, and um, they they you know there have been what like three recent big acquisitions in oil stuff, big enough, you know, $10 billion plus. Occidental is, is not using all shares, although they're using some shares. So they're buying some oil in the Permian um, without using all um, oil reserves that they already have and stuff. Some of the other companies, I don't know how much of a difference it makes. It, it mixes the, sh- it shifts the mix that they have. So in a sense, you know, Buffett said this before, like, so if Exxon buys something, they don't really buy it. They're using all shares. So if you know, if a big company buys Pioneer or whatever, 
using shares, it's selling itself, all the reserves it has all over the world, all the other things it has at other, you know, downstream things or whatever. And um, it is doing that in exchange for the Permian stuff that they want or whatever it might be. Um, whereas when NACO uses cash to buy um, oil in the Permian um, and when Occidental does this deal, um, in both of those cases, it's using cash to do it, which is different. Or if it borrowed money to do it, it'd be different. So those are big differences. They're using, you know, they're betting bigger on it in the sense that those two companies, in the sense that they're using large amounts of their enterprise value, you know, over 10% and stuff in a single year on, you know, on a cash basis or with using debt and stuff instead of most of it being done in stock. Um, so that's a different signal that it's sending. Whereas the other ones that are doing share swaps between them, it, you know, um, they're preferring some multiple in some part of the world for oil stuff, as opposed to, you know, pricing it on other things. In in essence, they could be telling you that their stock is expensive. And if their stock is expensive and the stuff they're buying is cheap, that's fine. Um, but they always talk about it as if it's an acquisition when in fact, you know, it, who knows? Um, you know, Callan Petroleum did a deal where they talked about, you know, the the EBITDA multiple that they were buying stuff at, right? You know, it's like less than three or something, which is great. But of course, it's misleading because they're divesting and acquiring at the same time. And they're all divesting at like the same multiple. That's just what everything's going for in, in oil and Texas stuff is, you know, three times EBITDA or something. So that's what they divested and that's what they acquired at, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even from that perspective, I mean, how can you judge if you, let's say, did 100% of your shares to purchase a company? I mean, is there a way to judge over time if that was the right decision? Is it still Buffett's market value test? Yeah, I mean, Teledyne, it worked well for them. They, they issued mm -hmm. a lot and then they bought back. A lot of uh, bank roll-ups over time were done successfully that way. They basically um, issued stock at a higher price to book than they bought, than they acquired banks at. It's a good way to make money in, in banking and in insurance doing that. It was interesting uh, about Teledyne how, yeah, he bought back a lot of his stock when the valuation multiples were low and then he would issue it when it's high. It kind of reminded me mm -hmm. of Tillman Fertitta, how he went like public a couple of times, then bought back the company, then took it public again, then bought the like based on yeah. the multiples that uh, that the companies were trading at at the time. And what you hit on is really what matters, which is you just want, that someone managing a public company where um, Singleton, I don't know if he ever owned much more than the six or 7% of the company um, where they're managing it the same way they would run their own money. What you talked about in um, restaurants, casinos is also what we saw in the, the NASCAR tracks. Those companies all went public yeah. at high multiples and then they went private at low multiples, which is good for the families that control them. And yeah. families always do that to their benefit but they don't necessarily do it when they're running it as a public company and certainly professional managers may not do it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so like in autos, uh, in the auto dealers in the UK, you at Cambria at a certain multiple, they took the company private. So people were betting on his capital allocation and stuff. He kept to the same capital allocation he had done before and everything. It's just, you were on the other side of the deal. You know, the same thing with, with Hunter Douglas or with any of those things is that at some point you're not on the same side of the deal with them. And so often it's easier to know what they'll do with their own money, but you don't always know that their own money and your money will be on the same side of the table in every deal. Um, at some point they may try to take a private at an unattractive price for you or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, professional managers, 
how do they typically think about capital allocation? I mean, do they really just kind of waltz in and be like, oh, wow, now I have to allocate a lot of this cash. I don't really know how to think about this. I mean, from your experience, just through books you've read and different accounts and whatnot, how do professional managers typically think about it? I mean, it is a unique skill set, right? And a lot of times if you rise to the ranks because you are a professional manager, perhaps you weren't allocating capital. Um, so what are your thoughts on professional managers and allocating capital and, um, you know, just how they typically think about it? For most of them, it's how they were trained and it's what their peers are doing. So normally when people don't really know how to do something, they look around and kind of ask what are the best practices and stuff. So if you take over Microsoft and you've never done anything like that before, you go, okay, well, what does Facebook do? What does Apple do? What is what, you know, and you might listen to analysts, you might read media reports, whatever, that all gets into your head. And so that's what kind of tends to happen. And then the other thing is how you were trained at the company. You know, one of the big things with General Electric and what went wrong there is they really focused at the subsidiary levels at earnings and not cash flow. And um, they ended up with a lot of people at the top who had not been trained very well in making decisions that would be important once you got to the top to a company that was in real need of um, improving their capital situation. They weren't sort of telling them that you, um, they weren't training people in terms of thinking in cash terms and thinking of how much capital you were tying up. And so when people got to the top of the organization, that's a problem because um, they hadn't really thought about those kinds of things before. And the whole organization was run that way so that when it got into a situation where it needed to improve that, they didn't have a lot of people inside who would have known how to do that. But sometimes what you get is people who are kind of observers of the industry, have a criticism of things that are done wrong or something, and decide when they get to the top, they're going to do it differently. Um, you know, and there's a couple examples of that in the outsiders. I think uh, the general dynamics example, but especially the Ralston Perina example, is someone looking at it and saying, well, this doesn't really make that much sense and stuff. And so they're taking their sort of um, approach of how they would run things if they could run the whole thing. And it's interesting, too, like some companies just learn by, you know, touching that stove. I can think of a couple companies that issued shares at, you know, bad valuations to buy other stuff and then their stock gets killed and they're like, oh, wow, I mm -hmm. guess that's not what investors like. Perhaps we shouldn't do that. Um, what are your thoughts on there are some management teams that communicate their capital allocation to investors? So they'll say, if we get to like a 15% free cash flow yield or 12% free cash flow yield, the buyback machine is on and we're just clipping away. Do you have any thoughts on that approach to capital allocation? It's okay. It could attract people. Uh -huh. um, it, it's certainly a way to attract investors to your stock and to attract certain kinds of investors to your stock if that's what you want. Investors really like that kind of hard trigger that way. Yeah. Um, I would be worried about that in that, you know, Buffett and Singleton are the same way. They had no master plan, right? Um, even to a significant extent, Malone had no master plan. Um, he had an idea that he played out to the point where it made sense to play that out. And then he did other things when it made sense to play out those things. But, you know, it, he was basically focused, all of them focused on extreme efficiency in terms of what's the formula for what creates the most value at this time. And so at one point, the the, the big things that can move the needle are different, a lot of times because of prices, but sometimes it can be because of other things. Um, and what makes sense in one industry at one time could be really different from another industry at another time. 
So you can, the environment can change so much that you maybe don't want to say that, you know, um, that would make a ton of sense, except what if whoever's saying that said, so if they were saying that and it's something very, very predictable and the pricing doesn't go crazy, then it makes a lot of sense. But if either the pricing goes crazy in the industry with different things, um, or simply let's say it's newspapers or something, do you want to buy back at that, those multiples if it's, you know, um, an industry that might be in decline after that, right? Or like, you know, oil, you wouldn't want to do it on a free cash flow basis, but you might say we'll do it on a uh, barrel of oil equivalent basis of some sort of thing about the discount, the value to the, the you know, the present value to the discounted um, level of like, okay, what would make sense at $60 barrel oil or something? But you wouldn't want to do it to say over a certain amount of free cash flow, we're going to buy back stock because what if oil goes to 140? And so that's why you have a lot of free cash flow. And so you're wasting that free cash flow buying back very at a very expensive stock, right? Sure. What about like a company like Apple, right? Uh, a, it's interesting to see that their revenue, this is just the top line, right? I mean, their revenue has uh, declined uh, annually, I believe. Yeah. I mean, it's really only year over year. But uh, a lot of Buffett's return since he's owned it, I mean, earnings have, have gone up dramatically, but they've also mm-hmm. uh, had a huge multiple expansion. Um, but, you know, like a company that's at 31 times free cash flow earnings, whatever you want to use, I mean, they still buy back like, what, $20 billion a quarter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a huge amount. Uh, so to me, this is almost like they're on autopilot with their, their buyback. Would you rather a company just kind of take the Buffett approach and really just soak up capital and do big stuff? Or would you rather that do like kind of automatic stuff like this? Like I understand mm-hmm. in the sense of one may be better for the long term than the other. Um, but then in the short term, you still get this. Okay, well, they still buy back, you know, in this case, uh, $80 billion a year or, or whatever of uh of their own stock however it is at way higher valuations which approach do you prefer just continue to stockpile that cash and then if you get the opportunity do something big with it no because there's no evidence that apple would know how to do that no one apple has ever done that and they have too much money so that's the same problem that berkshire has i mean at this point i think berkshire is probably and buffett may even realize this it does it really make sense to pile up the cash when it's this big um, as a percentage of your balance sheet and stuff is one thing because you could always find a big deal, but can he really find a deal that big? Um, so with both Apple and Berkshire, it's, it, it, you know, when you're this size, it's just a way to get rid of the cash and stuff. Like if you look at Apple with the buybacks you're talking about, uh, if they wanted to buy Paramount, I don't think that it would absorb more than six months or something of their buybacks that you're talking about. So it would barely make a change if you wanted to make a huge transformational deal like that. And um, what else could they buy? You know, um, what else would they want to buy? What would make sense that they could e- that would be better to buy than to you know build it out themselves? Um, and that would really move the needle for the rest of the company by moving it more into one thing or another. So even the biggest deals you can think of are small compared to how much they need to use up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny too. I mean, there's a story about Steve Jobs not wanting to do buybacks and mm-hmm. even like called Buffett and asked for his advice on it. I think Buffett told him to buy back his stock and Steve just like was not interested in doing that. 
Yeah. Well, from that story, it's clear that he understood rationally that he should buy back the stock, but that he never would. But, you know, that may be why Buffett invested in the stock when he did and not before then. Yeah. It's all about capital allocation, right? Yeah. I don't know that he would have wanted Steve Jobs as the head of Apple forever. You know, I don't know that yeah. that would be as attractive to him. Mm -hmm. In Buffett's situation, and let's play more on what you had just said, perhaps like piling up all that cash, it's just too much. Yeah. Could you make a case for Berkshire to pay out their yeah. cash in the form of dividends? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that Berkshire has a path anymore to achieve higher than average returns on its um, investments as opposed to like if it just invests in index funds and things. So I don't know that the investment management aspect of it really matters anymore. And while it has some benefits to being an insurance company that way, and it certainly has more... Um, not paying dividends is very important for the capital strength of the company. Dividends are often the thing that put the capital strength of something like an insurer in trouble because they'll pay it out for too long. I mean, um, so it helps a lot that way. Any bank, any insurance thing, any of that, if they had no dividend, would be in a strong position to bounce back from things and to get into a strong capital position again. Um, but Berkshire also knows that its float isn't going to increase over time. So it's not like they can suddenly write a lot of business against the capital that they have. So... I don't know that there'll be that much for them to do and you could break it up obviously. Um, and there'll be lots of people who push for that. But the other way that you could do it is just by either buying back a lot of stock over time or paying a dividend or having a formal policy where you buy back below a certain level and you do a dividend or something like that. Um, you know, you could do a like quarterly thing or whatever where you tender for stock if it meets certain requirements and you pay out dividends if it does and the company designates how much you know, excess capital is. Buffett's pretty much told people how much is excess. Like, you know, he says, you know, I need 30 billion or I need 50 billion or whatever to feel comfortable. So you can see that over a certain level, Berkshire could say, we need to get rid of this in some way and then just change how they get rid of it rather than paying a regular dividend, which would be more of a problem um, for, I, I, you know, for like what wants to be a triple A um, insurance company, uh, the, you know, the strongest in the world and stuff it helps to not pay a dividend. Mm -hmm. Do you think he'll ever do that in his lifetime? Or do you think that'll be sort of after Buffett? That sounds like an after problem. I mean, I think the biggest concession he made to that was the buybacks. I think that's the real purpose of the buybacks mm -hmm. is to, that is how could we absorb money in some way? Um, and then it was, it's really about that. And that if the stock had traded cheaply for a long period of time, then maybe that would be a way to use up money. But I think that was a concession to the idea that we have too much cash was really the buyback. Um, thing. I, I don't know that he would have been as excited about Buybox even if the company was really cheap. Berkshire had been cheaper before early in its history. Um, but there was just so much he could do and so much he could imagine happening again that he'd have a big opportunity to do something. This time, I don't think that he feels that's as much the case just because it's gotten to such an uh, incredibly large size. I mean, whenever Charlie Munger would say it's the world that's changed and everything, Buffett would say, no, it's the size of our company has changed and that's why we can't do the same things we did before you know he, he would say if you give me a small amount of money i can still do things um whereas charlie was saying it's more the market's gotten more efficient and everything maybe they're both right yeah of course it could be both of them or no and also it can be temporary i mean if something goes on for long enough then you think oh um i mean he when he quit in the 60s he may not have thought that the next decade or so would be the greatest opportunity that he'd ever see as an investor um it's hard to imagine things swinging that much. But I mean, I think in the 70s market downturn, 
the median stock was down 70, 80% or something incredible. And he had a small amount of money. So it's not like the indexes matter to him. It, it was like the median stock mattered. And for things to come down that much, you know, imagine it now you think, oh, the market's kind of expensive or whatever. Well, you're not expecting that suddenly things could go on sale by three quarters off, you know, that would change your attitude. And you'd be saying, oh, I can take in as much cash as you can give me. I can invest in everything, you know, from going there from saying, oh, I need to wind up my partnership. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's efficiency and sometimes it's an expensive market. It's very hard to tell the difference between the two while you're living it. So let's say a public company CEO was listening and wanted to reach out to you, uh, to get advice on, um, how they should think about capital allocation, similar to how Steve reached out to, uh, Buffett, uh, what advice would you give them? Uh, my advice is always that, look, everything is ultimately a cash to cash transaction that you're doing. So there are things that maybe strategically or whatever people convince you are important. Um, but it's hard to tell the difference between that and fashion. So what you want to do is say, okay, if I pay this out to you, can I get a return that's better than that by keeping it? Can get, I get a return that's better than that by buying this thing that I like that doing this, um, it may make a great deal of sense to buy up things in the Permian. But it also may just be that it's now fashionable for everyone to think the Permian is a good thing to be in and it won't matter what price they're paying. So um, what the kind of capital allocation that you want is what Berkshire did in Japan. Where they said, okay, well, we can finance this at like nothing. These are cheap stocks. Um, they'll probably go up over time. And while we own them, we'll get this spread on it, basically, you know, so it, you can, this is the cheapest way to create value. This is the cheapest on a cash to cash basis to get this kind of return. And that's what you'd want to be thinking, whether you're an oil company or whatever. I mean, it, it, a lot of times they'll just think, okay, well, we should spin off our gas stations or something. Well, at one price and stuff, it makes sense. But at another price, the gas stations provide you with a, a better multiple, a better return on tying up the capital in that than you could get in other parts of the oil business and stuff. Um, so I think generally people are going to think thematically, strategically. The really great um, fortunes made that we're talking about in a lot of these companies are made by just doing always rational things never doing anything crazy um, and always on the substance of it, not any of the attraction of what's in fashion, what the terms are that people are using, uh, you know, the buzzwords and everything of it. And um, what will be the main problem for most companies in terms of capital allocation is they will get caught up in the different illusions of the period. So there'll be a period where they think we need to be in to be an entertainment company. I don't think we need to be in toys because there's baby boomers and you know, that's going to be the thing. And then you'll say, well, we need to be in uh, VCR stuff because you know, that home video thing is becoming the biggest thing ever. Then you'll say it's streaming and each time it will feel like it's the change of uh, that. It's the thing you need to be in to stay relevant. Um, but that's always the biggest concern. I mean, that was my biggest concern when we were investing in NACO, for instance, with the spinoff, it isn't, Oh, it's dying over time and stuff. I mean, they'll have, as they have had plenty of time to make a pivot to something else. The biggest concern is that you go, Oh, we're tied to coal and stuff. Let's quickly, whatever the price, buy something solar thing, because then that'll get, you know, that that's what will make investors, analysts, whatever, stop asking about the fact that you're dying business from this other thing. 
And so you do this knee jerk move to that. It's always just based on getting out a paper and pencil and doing the numbers. Um, all the other things are fine. It's good to focus on this thing or do that, but it always has to work on terms of the numbers. And so you have to say, I'm laying out this amount of money to get this amount of money back. Um, a lot of, a lot of companies pay a premium for comfort or whatever being something that's a little bit more popular or that's a little, not going to be so much controversial or whatever, instead of saying, you know, um, this gets me the best return. Um, and then it just snowballs over time. So if you keep doing that for 10 years, you actually end up with a lot less capital than, you know, the Berkshire and the Teledyne and whatever happens. You're wondering how did they get so big and have all these opportunities that I don't have. It's because in the early years you didn't do it, but in year one, it didn't seem like it would make that big a difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we spoke with a CEO one time who's an owner operator, understands capital allocation, seems like lifelong learner, total Buffett fanatic. And he had told us, uh, one time that he thought about, like he sort of went through the the math of, you know, what do they have to do to become a hundred bagger over time? Mm -hmm. Okay, like what does that mean if they were to become a hundred bagger? And then how do you work back to the present? Like what steps need to be taken um, to get there? And uh, I don't know. I don't think a lot of public companies think about that, right? And it doesn't have to be a hundred bagger. It could be ten bagger, fifty bagger, whatever, right. twenty bagger. Um, but I was always pretty impressed of how we thought, okay, how do you get there? What could the company look like? And I imagine all he was doing is a normal multiple for our businesses 15 times. Okay, uh, how do we get to this valuation? What do we need to do, do in free cash flow or, ca or EBITDA or cash flow earnings, whatever you want? Like, what does the company have to look like and how do you get there? And I don't know, I was just always impressed by that because I don't think, I guess I should say, I know that most companies don't. Uh, think about things like that, you know, and constantly think with their capital allocation hat on, on how they can create value over time. You know, cause most businesses, you're going to have mm -hmm. to start buying things at some point, unless you're like a, maybe a software as a service business that, you know, your total addressable market is infinite, right? But most companies, if you want to continue to grow, you're going to have to pivot, innovate, buy, whatever. I mean, look at Berkshire, and their business today, I mean, four units make up the entire company. And, um, you know, what it looks like today is nowhere what it looked like 20 years ago, you know, from the perspective of where their earnings and cash flow come from. Yeah. Going back to Charlie Munger, you know, he said that it's a tragedy what happened with GM. I mean, GM, as in making cars and stuff, maybe had to, uh, was doomed to not a lot of success. But there was no reason why the shareholders of the corporation should ever lose all their money. It was a very successful enterprise that could have pivoted to other things and done other things for their shareholders. Um, same thing with like Sears or something. How easy would it have been to stop the decline of Sears as a retail company, you know, as a chain using that name? Maybe not that easy, but there was a long period of time with a lot of real estate and a lot of valuable things they'd collected in diverse businesses that you could have. Um, protected shareholders' money over that time, right? So what you're saying, like both extremes would come up pretty quickly in terms of capital allocation requirements. Like, okay, let's say um, that you're all in on some business that's dying or something. Well, you actually have big capital allocation requirements. You have to get out of those things and reallocate that money to something else. You know, Buffett had that problem right away with the textile business, whether it was producing money or not. He needed to get into things that had great uh, returns on capital. But then if you're a Google or an Apple or something, 
after the a decade, you're going to have too much capital all the time that you have nowhere to put it. And so you're going to be faced with the same problem. A terrible business and a great business both face this problem pretty early on. You know, maybe if you're in the growth phase of being, you know, a railroad or whatever, or utility in the days when those things were growing, you never face this problem because you can have a 10 year plan for here's how we're going to do things. And this is how much we need to grow capacity and our assets are so long lived and all of that. But for most businesses, a terrible business is going to require you to get out of other things and put the money in something else. And a great business is going to have too much cash um, coming in and you're going to have to do something with it. So it's it's really more the mediocre businesses that you don't have to face that problem all the time. Um, you know, someone asked about um, uh, Herco, which I know was written up on Value Investors Club and stuff. It, it was a net net. I don't know if it still is a net net as of today, but that's the kind of business where you don't have to make a lot of decisions about capital allocation because it's not that great a business. It's it it's not that terrible business either, but it's not that great a business. So often you have to tie up everything in inventory over time, whether you want to or not. But most businesses don't look like that. And more did maybe 50 years ago in the United States. They're a lot more capital heavy that way. But most don't. So it's going to be really important what companies do with the capital allocation. Um, you know, and even when we talk about things, you know, people talk about the future of Disney or whatever, right? It'll be the same thing. What do we sell off? What do we buy? How do we change? You know, that's very important. If you get the wrong price for something or you get out of the uh, an asset that would have been very valuable for you. So it comes up in all sorts of different companies to make those decisions. And a lot of times it isn't based on looking at the numbers and what it'll mean for your stock. It can be like, okay, well, we promised we won't get rid of this asset. Or we told them that we're going to focus on this part of the business, right? And we laid out that plan and we got to stick to that plan and not make it look like we're pivoting too much to one thing or the other. They always hate to, to make it look like there's actually a change in strategy, sure. right? It also yeah. has to be a continuation of what they've said before. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I would focus on people need to think more in terms of numbers and less in terms of the press release that goes out explaining the capital allocation, just because it will add up over time, no matter whether people like it or don't like it the day that you make the announcement over the long run, what matters is those cash on cash returns that you get. And that's what really determines the compounding of the stock over a long period of time. And they'll forgive everything if your stock goes up a lot more than the market over 10 or 15 years. Um, and they won't forgive much if, you know, you underperform the market over that period. So that's the long-term test. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focused Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you are joining us, be sure to check out our Twitter, uh, which is at Focus Compound. That is the best way to keep track of everything that we push out into the investing universe. Uh, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me directly at andrew at focuscompounding.com. Uh, all the information is in the description below. Uh, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching us here today uh, so you will be notified every time we upload a new podcast. I want to thank everybody so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.